Hello all and welcome to another episode of The Goddess Project. It has been a while since I last saw you all. So I'm very excited to be back and I'm very, very excited to share this new episode with you. So for those of you that are new here, welcome uh, and you somehow stumbled across this uh, podcast or this video on YouTube or on Spotify, welcome, hi, hello. And for those of you that have been around since the very first episode of Lilith, hi, hello. Um, as you can see, if you're watching on YouTube, I'm at my uh, crazy office uh, on campus today, which is very exciting. And I'm very, very excited to share with you this um, episode on goddesses with torches, because at first I thought to myself, there's probably not that many goddesses who carry torches. And as I started looking into this topic, I started to realize that there are a few, there are several, more than we're going to talk about here, actually. But so I've selected about five that we're going to look at that are super important, maybe more, five or six. And I did that because there are others that carry flames. Uh, for example, Inanna Ishtar is also a flame carrier, but I would like to do an episode, an upcoming episode just on her alone. And, um, and well, I'll also do an episode on Hecate on her alone coming up as well. But I am talking about Hecate today. And so I selected a few that sort of fall into a flow, as we're going to see. Particularly, I selected those that carry torches, except for Bridget, which we're going to talk about. Um, she carries a flame. But I like this idea of the torches themselves. And so we're going to talk a little bit about what does it mean to carry a torch? And actually, you know what? Sorry, <laughs> totally side rant. As those of you who are subscribed to this channel know, I don't edit these um podcasts. I just kind of talk into it and um, hopefully you you enjoy some of my side rants. But I just thought about when you talk about carrying a torch and in English, you know, carrying a torch means uh, it's an old way of saying that you're in love with someone or like you're in love with someone that doesn't love you back or you've been in love with someone for many, many years that doesn't love you back. And this, you know, they say, oh, you've carried a torch for him, you know, for 10 years or you've carried a torch for her since you were a child or things like that. And I just thought of that, you know? Um, so again, this idea of carrying torches tends to be significant. And also, of course, I didn't put this in my uh, plans for today or in my uh, slides, but the carrying of tor the Olympic torch and how, you know, the torch carrier carries the torch and lights the Olympic flame, which begins the games. Um, and then at the end, the Olympic flame is kept kind of like the Vestal Virgins used to keep um, the flame in Rome and how Hestia keeps the flame in the house. It's kept, uh, it's sort of preserved and protected. And then the following year, sorry, the following four years of the Olympics happen every four years, uh, another uh, torch carrier lights up their torch in the flame from the year before and then goes to, travels to the country that the Olympics are in that year and lights up another flame. So two things I've just thought of right now um, as I am introducing this episode. So there is a lot, a lot of material for torch carrying. And I hope that if there's any idea that sort of comes to you as you're listening or watching this podcast episode, um, 
that you can put that in the comments too, because I think that there's a lot to carrying torches that maybe we don't think about. One of my favorite things to do on these episodes is to talk about things that seem somewhat unimportant. Maybe unimportant is not the right word, but seem somewhat sidelined, you know, uh, and especially goddesses or symbols that seem somewhat side, like people either take it for granted. Yeah, of course, I know what a torch means. Or they think, oh, yeah, Hestia, I guess she's all right. Or Vesta, you know, she's all right. And kind of dive into their meaning and their symbolism and see if there's not more to them than we take for granted, including myself, you know, so it's a challenge to myself, because I'm so used to used to spending time with Artemis, um, even though originally Artemis was also a less, mm, I'm thinking of the word, less written about, or classicists in the modern period weren't as interested in Artemis. Um, uh, so she was a bit sidelined in the modern world. I mean, I argue in my book, where's my book? I don't know if you could see it in the book, She Who Hunts. Uh, in this book, I argue, of course, that she's the goddess who changed the world. And I am writing a new book right now um, on Artemis, the Artemis of Ephesus, where I am going to argue that she's a goddess that feeds the world. So in the ancient world, many of the goddesses I talk about had primary um, favor. You know, uh, in the case of Artemis, she was widely worshipped, widely. I would say her worship challenges the worships of people like uh, goddesses like Athena or Demeter. Um, in fact, if I was to say, and I know I'm sorry, I'm going on a little side rant to Artemis. I'm sorry, that's my boo. Um, if I was to say who who Artemis sort of is equal to or competes with, or it's not really a competition, but is on is on par with, I would say Persephone and Artemis are on par and Hecate and Artemis are on par. Perhaps Aphrodite, although that's a whole different. Um, if you've watched the episode on Aphrodite, you know that that is a, a, a widely complex and a widely popular goddess as well. So um, welcome to all of you. Um, and thank you so much for being here and for listening and watching. If you are watching and you would like to learn more about the Artemis Research Center, which is an institute that I um, have founded, uh, where we have courses and travel, and uh, I am starting a blog as well. Uh, you can see the QR code here if you're watching it and you want to uh, join our newsletter or take a look around uh, through our site as you listen to the episode. And if not, and if you're listening to this, you can easily click on any of the links um, in the description or go to theartemiscenter.com. And center is spelled the Canadian way with it's C-E-N-T-R-E.com um, and join our mailing list and also look around and see what's new with the Artemis Center. So... Without further ado, let's talk a little bit about goddesses and torches. So we begin by looking at the symbol for Columbia Pictures. And so the symbol for Columbia Pictures, as many of you know, if you go to the movies or, you know, you watch movies, is the woman that is wrapped, looks like kind of like a Greek um, toga with a purple wrap across her body. Uh, and she's holding 
what looks like a torch or a very bright light bulb. And there's clouds behind her. So if you're listening to this, you probably know what I'm talking about. One of my favorite recent um, memes and and uh, clips that Columbia Pictures has started using is where she's standing there with the torch, holding her torch, and the zombies are coming up the steps towards her and she starts whacking them with her uh, torch. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's it's really fun. But it really connects to an image that I'm going to show you that you can Google easily of Hecate using her torches as weapons uh, in a fight against the giants. And so there's this <laughs> there's this sort of double meaning to to torches. They don't always just um, represent lighting up the world and all of the things that comes with light and enlightenment. But they can be technically and literally used as weapons, and many goddesses have used them as weapons um, in the past, certainly in Greek mythology. So what do torches mean? What does it mean to carry a torch or to have a torch? And this kind of goes across any divinity or person that carries a torch. In this case, we're going to look at goddesses, though there are a couple of male gods that also have torches. Um, we might discuss them later on. So the meaning of, of torches, of course, the very first and most obvious is the light and illumination. So this idea of dispelling the darkness, okay, both literally and metaphorically, um, representing knowledge. So this idea of enlightenment, the pursuit of truth, seeing, right? So the very act of seeing is a type of learning, a type of knowledge. There is a power of wisdom. There's a power of knowledge. They also refer, they also mean divinity and the sacred. They often talk about divinity and the sacred when they're talking about goddesses who carry torches. So in many ancient religions, of course, um, torches are associated with the divine. And as we'll see, of course, these goddesses carry torches. They are also seen as a symbol of divine communication between the realms so often gods or goddesses that carry torches are interactive divinities divinities that almost sort of light up your mind light up your soul and connect with you so there's this deep relationship torches of course were often carried in religious ceremonies rituals and processions so I want you to think about a time before electricity and how significant torches were. I think everyone takes them for granted, even in the past. I think people took them for granted. But I want you to think about rituals, especially night rituals or mystery rituals or mystery cults where you're going down into the basements of things or into darkness of things. And while the darkness is not necessarily scary, there are lots of aspects in which the darkness is warm and womb-like and powerful. The idea of seeing in the darkness or receiving light in the darkness or receiving a message of knowledge in the darkness has a lot to do with enlightenment, with connection, with spirituality. As you can see, it's a very powerful symbol. You know, torches are really fascinating because they're such a simple symbol of such a complex aspect um, that we don't really think about it often. And of course, imagine that you were living without electricity and torches were really the, your salvation in the sense that those are really the only ways to see at night, see in the dark, see the enemy, see in a battle, see anywhere you went. You know, you had to light a flame and, uh, and, and 
torch bearers were um, positions of honor, especially for the gods and especially in ritual. As such, you won't be surprised that they also mean guidance and protections. Because they're a light, a way to light the darkness, they are a way to guide or protect, as we've just said. Uh, they're also sometimes referred to as symbols of transformation and renewal, right? So because fire is, of course, represented in torches, uh, this has long been associated with a transformative process. And so bringing a torch or a fire to a ritual uh, often can mean a change, purification, a type of renewal. So this idea that they burn bright, that they chase the darkness away, that they give you warmth. All of these ideas are really, really, really um, significant. And so often, like I said, torchbearers play a key role in ritual. And passing the torch, like we talked about earlier in the Olympic Games, passing the torch, it's actually something that we continue to say in English today when we say uh, when uh, a mentor gives a student, um, I don't know, their acceptance or an, uh, when a person is initiated into a group or um, when when wisdom or knowledge is passed down, we say, we have a saying, passing the torch. So like my mentor passed the torch to me, which means he, he kind of retired, let's say, and he passed me um, his knowledge. And now I'm the one in, in charge of teaching it. Um, so carrying the torch for love, passing the torch for knowledge, uh, Columbia Pictures does not accidentally use this um, symbol. It's, this is a very purposely crafted symbol, and I've placed here in the um, in the YouTube presentation the name of the so the the woman that's that the model for that was Jenny Joseph, um, and Michael Diaz is the photographer. Um, Actually, sorry, the photographer, I'm sorry, is Kathy Anderson, but the artist that put together uh, this image was Michael Diaz. And so if you want to look at, if you want to look that up, if you want to look at the story behind uh, the Columbia Pictures logo, you can look that up and see. But this was a very purposeful image. And the artist had this uh, design in mind um, and wanted to convey the fact that Columbia Pictures was a light in the darkness, um, a um, a joy in the sadness, especially as movies played a key role um, in the depression and in later years during the war and after the war, um, movies started to take a role that hmm, uh, hmm, what's the word? I'm it's, I'm thinking about warmth, but this idea that and and sort of um happiness that you could escape into the world of movies, that, that you could escape the your life in, and watch films. And and I think that's still the key to it. That's still not much of the aspect today of escaping and going into watch movies or et cetera. Um, so Columbia Pictures had a very purposeful way of using ancient mythology, ancient imagery, and this ancient, ancient symbol of torch carrying or torch bearing um, to, you know, commercialize and market their own product. You know, sometimes now that I'm thinking about it, um, it's a little sad how much uh, mythology has become commercialized. Um, 
it's a little unfortunate because in order to commercialize something, you have to really create a one-dimensional figure, like a print figure. And I think part of the problem of us learning more about goddesses and gods and the ancient world is because we've spent so many times looking at them one-dimensionally and they are three-dimensional um, concepts and beings. So anyways, so I never know, you know, it's important for me to draw popular culture in and we're going to draw popular culture, especially around torches. But um, it's it's also a little bit disheartening because so much of that meaning becomes then associated with some type of a mar marketing ploy or a corporation. So mm, a double-edged sword kind of thing. Yeah. Okay, let's move forward into our very first divinity. Let's talk about Hestia. Now, Hestia, I always feel, doesn't get enough attention. She And, and I don't know if that's true. You can uh, agree or disagree with me. But for me, I guess, I've never really... You know, I always saw her as the goddess of the hearth and the goddess of the flame. Yes, but it I never really paid that much attention to her other than that. Um, I guess I always associated her with domesticity, which is part of her um, realm. And so for a long time, I wasn't really interested. But as I looked at her as the goddess of the flame, um, I can very easily begin to see how significant she might be and that perhaps I too may have overlooked her you know so Hestia Hestia is the virgin goddess of the hearth and again I use this word virgin in the sense of unmarried I don't want you to think about virgin organically like the hymen although for in the case of Hestia both may have been accurate okay um she is the goddess of family she provided overcooking. So bread was a big thing for her. Um, she was the goddess of bread and the preparation of the family meal. I don't really cook. So I guess I never really connected to Histia on that level. Uh, but I do understand the meaning of bread and how bread, of course, um, has so many symbolic implications. And so her being the goddess of the flame, the goddess of food, the goddess of bread or protector of bread, actually, um, is, is really important and was really important to the ancients. Um, she is also the goddess of the sacrificial flame. So the flames that burn during sacrifices, the torches that burn during sacrifices, she is the goddess that presides over that. She is the goddess that keeps the flame burning. And so as such, she receives a share of the sacrifice to the gods. So as you know, the animal sacrifices that were presented to the gods, each of the gods, depending on who they were sacrificing towards, received a share of the animal. But Hestia, because she was always present, because the flame was always present, she received the share each time there was a ritual each time there was a sacrifice, she received a, chair, a share. I mean, that's significant because she is present at all times and she is fed. I say that in quotation marks, but she is fed at all times. Yeah. As a side note, I'm doing um, a talk at a 
conference slash festival at the end of October. And I've really been thinking, so I've been thinking about it's on Artemis and I've been thinking a lot about what the talk is. And one of the things that keeps coming up for me, as you've just seen a second ago, is the feeding of the gods. And uh, all the gods wanted to be fed. All the gods needed to be fed. And one of my things lately has been that we are not really feeding the gods anymore. Uh, and so I thought about doing a little presentation about that, about feeding gods, about what would be appropriate for us to do now and what did they like to eat in the past. Anyways, so this is a little side rant, but the more I think about how much the gods were fed in the ancient world, um, the main god of the ritual plus Hestia of the flame, the more I'm starting to wonder if perhaps part of our break in the connection with them is that we are not feeding them. And in Christianity, for example, you know, Christians eat the body of Christ, drink the blood of Christ. I mean, you know, not literally, but the wafer and the wine and blah, blah, blah. But symbolically, we eat the God instead of feeding the God. In the ancient Greek world, nobody ate the God. Nobody, nobody consumed the God. We fed the gods. So there's something there. Like, I, you know how you feel it on the edges of your mind? There's something there. There's definitely a shift between giving to gods and taking from gods. Um, but there's something there, you know? And I feel it like on the edges of my thoughts every time I'm talking about it. So I think it might be something to look into um, and to create this talk about. So back to Hestia. Uh, Hestia was the firstborn child of Kronos and Rhea, who was swallowed by her father at birth. So she's the firstborn. And remember that Kronos was swallowing all his children. Later, when Zeus uh, forced um, blah, 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 when Zeus forced Kronos to vomit up all of his children, Hestia was the last of her siblings, as of course she had been the first to be swallowed. And so she is in a way named the oldest and the youngest um, of the Olympian gods, which is kind of funny. Uh, later on, Apollo and Poseidon sought her hand in marriage and uh, she refused. And she asked Zeus to let her remain um, eternal virgin. But, you know, basically she asked Zeus in the same way that um, Artemis asked Zeus to remain eternal virgin. I say this in quotation, which means I want to remain unmarried. I'm not interested in any of these dudes. Um, and I don't want to be attached to them. And of course, um, Zeus agreed to it. And he allowed her to take her place at the royal hearth. Now the hearth in Greek and Roman worlds, the hearth, uh, think of it kind of like a fireplace, a fireplace in the house. Of course, this was the, the, the time before central heating. So there's no heat. And while Greece and Italy are warm countries, they are not tropical. They have winters and they have cold seasons. And so both in the summers and in the winters and in between, the hearth inside the house was the only source of warmth for the entire house, uh, mostly stone houses, sometimes uh, wood houses, very rarely actually wood houses. Um, and so it was very important to keep the fire in the house going. And because the fire in the house, the hearth, the fireplace, some, uh, sorry, I'm digressing, but some houses had the hearth literally right in the middle of the living room. 
um, and everyone would kind of gather around it. And some houses um, had hearths throughout, depends on the size of it. If you had a large villa, you had several hearths in there. Uh, and some had them in different parts. But it was common to have the hearth in the middle of a living room or in the middle of the house. And once this association between the goddess of the flame the importance of the flame, the warmth and enlightenment and wisdom and life aspect of fire become all associated together, we start to see a push or a tendency to not let the fire go out. And we'll see that with Vesta. So it becomes more and more important that you honor the goddess and that you have someone in the house, usually women, who watch the hearth, who keep putting fire on the hearth, who try not to let it go out at all. Yeah. And so again, then you see the connection between wisdom, knowledge, enlightenment, family, women, right? Female goddess watching the hearth, the center of the family, women, mothers, grandmothers, young daughters watching the flame. So I know that patriarchy, particularly Roman patriarchy, but Greek patriarchy as well, teaches us that the father is the center of the head of the household, let's say, um, or the leader of the household or all that things. But without this goddess and without the women fanning the flames, there would be no family. There would be no house, warm household. Um, there would be no light in the house. There would be no light. Um, and this association between women and knowledge has been long, ancient, um, women have always been thought to have mysterious knowledge that men don't have access to. And so they either access it through women, when women used to be leaders in matriarchies, or they access it through some type of painful, out-of-body um, trying or trial or rites of passage experience. And I know I've talked about this in previous episodes, but I just want you to see the connections and the logic uh, before we we had such ingrained gender roles that then were sold to us as the norm. But to be fair, the Greeks and Romans did participate in creating those gender roles and selling them to us as the norm. Whether they were the norm in Greek and Roman households, I mean, that's a whole other episode. Um, because there are many powerful women in Greek and Roman households, um, some of them on record. And so, again, what is written may not be exactly what people lived. Anyway, I digress. Um, she is often depicted as veiled. Um, and you can see in these statues here that she has a veil over her head. Um, this is, again, uh, a reference to her uh, sacredness, to the secret knowledge to the sort of hooded knowledge, the light in the darkness. If you Google Hestia, you will see that um, she is most often um, veiled in some way. And I wanted to tell you a story about uh, her and Priapus. Uh, Priapus, of course, is a god of, um, of mischief. Um, he likes to have sex with a lot of people. If you ever look him up uh, online, he has he's always depicted as a god that has a massive uh genital aspect uh, so he's a god of fertility a god of you know uh, plants and vegetables and and grain and all this kind of stuff so he spends a lot of time 
infertility fertility rites with either nymphs or other goddesses. And this is a good thing. I mean, the ancients wanted Priapus. There's images. If you've ever seen images at Pompeii, for example, there's fabulous image at Pompeii where someone in the house of Pompeii has an, a massive wall image of Priapus. So he's standing there in the garden and he has this additional member, this member that is almost the size of his leg, you know? And I think about that every time I, I, I think about Pompeii, I think about these people had had this image in their living rooms, uh, but that was seen as a sign of prosperity. And, and, and perhaps they were prosperous because this is a very wealthy household um, and fertility and, and happiness. So there's this, um, there's this story uh, about how Priapus tried to seduce Hestia. Now, I want you to think about Hestia as a very um, serious. She she's often a very serious divinity. She is not to be trifled with, and I'm not sure that she has a, a, a sense of humor very much. Uh, she really is a, a goddess that is very disciplined and very dedicated to her work. So Ovid tells us the story. So it begins. Should I omit or recount your shame, read Priapus? It is a very playful, tiny tale. Coroneted Kybele, so Kybele here for Ovid also is a cross with Rhea. We'll do an episode on Kybele because there's so much to say about her. With her crow of turrets, invites the eternal gods to her feast. So Kybele is having a feast, she invites everybody. She invites too the satyrs, the nymphs, and the rural spirits. Selenius is also present, although he is uninvited. It's not allowed and it's not allowed and too long to narrate the gods' banquet. Night was consumed with much wine. Some blindly stroll shadowy Ida's dells or lie down and rest their bodies in the soft grass. Others play or are clasped by sleep or link their arms and thump the green earth in triple quick step so they're dancing. Hestia lies down and takes a quiet, carefree nap, just as she was, her head pillowed by the turf. But the red savior of gardens, Priapus, prowls for nymphae and goddesses and wanders back and forth. He spots Hestia. It's unclear if he thought she was a nympha or knew it was Hestia. He claims ignorance. He conceives a vile hope and tires to steal upon her, I think, and tries to steal upon her, walking on tiptoe as his heart flutters. By chance, old Selenius had left the donkey he came on by a gently burbling stream. The long Hellespont's god was getting started. So Priapus was getting started when the donkey bellowed an untimely bray. So the, the donkey, the donkey, <laughs> the donkey bellows yeah the goddess stirs up frightened by the noise the whole crowd flies to her the nymphi everybody and the god flees through hostile hands so this is a, a pretty popular story it's a pretty it's supposed to be a fun story although i'm always torn about whether or not this is fun i mean the man is trying to assault her while she's sleeping this is not really fun at all um but it was told in a kind of playful way. Um, <laughs> playful, I say that in, in quotations. Um, in the sense that, oh, here is Priapus trying to seduce 
uh, assault, uh, torn at these words, um, Hestia and uh, the fact that the donkey, uh, who I guess hears sees him crawling or whatever, or maybe doesn't, but anyways, decides to bellow and bray, wakes her up. And then she's able to run away as everybody reaches to her, re- runs to her, the nymphi, and everybody goes, hey, everything okay. And he flees through hostile hands. So it seems like everyone was unhappy. <laughs> so again, one of the more popular stories about Hestia, but uh, that leaves a little bit of that bitter taste in your mouth, right? The other thing that I wanted to read to you was the hymn to Hestia, because I just kind of, I want to, I want you to uh, feel how she was uh, thought of in Homeric hymns. So there's, um, there's a Homeric hymn that I really like um, in which this is, you know, 7th century BCE. So 2,700 years ago, um, quite old. Hestia, in the high dwellings of all, both deathless gods and men who walk on earth, you have gained an everlasting abode and highest honor. Glorious is your portion and your right at the rituals. For without you, mortals hold no banquet. Where one does not duly pour sweet wine and offering to Hestia, both first and last. And you, Hermes, son of Zeus and Maya, be favorable and help us, you and Hestia, the worshipful and the dear. Come and dwell in this glorious house in friendship together. For you too, well knowing the noble actions of men, aid in their wisdom and their strength. Hail, daughter of Kronos, and you also, Hermes. So, um, there's a couple of hymns to him to Hestia. Um, there's also a hymn where um, a Homeric hymn, twenty-four, that says, "Hestia, you who tend the holy house of the Lord Apollo, the far shooter, at godly Pitho." So there's this uh, tradition that Hestia uh, guards the flame of Apollo at Delphi, um, and that she is again part of the ritual part of the prophecy. And I think it makes a lot of sense because you cannot have ritual, you cannot have prophecy, you cannot have anything without the flame. And so I just want to reemphasize how important Hestia was in the daily lives of ancient Greeks and eventually ancient Romans, and how perhaps she may have um, been dismissed or disregarded um, for historians or for others um, when we're talking about Olympians or when we're depicting Olympians in popular culture or when we're when we're worshiping, you know, um, Olympians for those of us who worship Olympians today. So let's move on a little bit to Vesta because Vesta is very similar to Hestia in many ways. So I don't want to repeat much of that. One of the things that the Romans did um, I don't know if any of you saw my um, my TikTok or my Instagram reel where um, I had duetted with someone who was talking about the way that men are thinking about Rome on a daily basis, which I found amazing. Um, American men, I should say, mostly, because there's a couple of European men that are being asked that are like, what? Uh, no, not really. So I think that there's there's something there actually that maybe we can do a whole episode on as well. But the Romans, and so when I posted that, there's a lot of uh, people who came on to comment and say, well, you know, the Romans built this and the Romans built that. And so I, when you see that, you think of them and the Romans did this and the Romans did everything, blah, blah, blah. One of the things about the Romans that I don't think we talk about enough is that they are great adapters. They are great plagiarizers. Um, 
They are great strategists. They're not great inventors, you know. Um, they build on what they they built a lot on what they con- on who they conquered the ideas of those they conquered, and they built a lot on what they saw around them. And so I think that they are. I I would prefer to call them great adapters. So they didn't. One of the comments, for example, on the video was like, "Well, you know, guess who invented the letters that we use in the alphabet?" And I I my reply was, "Well." I mean, they didn't invent the letters. Uh, they adapted the letters. Um, the alphabet has been around for a long time. And so they they took something that was already in existence and they adapted it and then they enforced it. And so that's great. You know, that's great and part of their success, but it's not an invention. It's not new. It's not original. And so I think that we don't talk about that enough. And you could, you could watch documentaries that will show you how Romans borrowed from everywhere they went, every country, every tribe, every continent that they conquered, they took whatever those people were doing, uh, even the aqueducts, even the way they built places, uh, so much of what they made better, um, they took ideas from people around them. And so in the same way, as you might all know, they adapted all of the Greek gods and all of the Greek mythology. They didn't come up with it. They didn't have their own mythology. Um, and they adapted that mythology and they added to it. Uh, did they make it better? I, I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't think they cared about making it making it better. I think they cared about making it useful for them. And so whether or not it was better is, is uh, arguable, right? Uh, but as you know, there are numerous gods, all the gods, except for Apollo, they switched their names and then they they had their own additional gods that they added to the pantheon. So Hestia is the same. Hestia becomes Vesta. And also exactly, she serves the exact same role. She is the goddess of the hearth and home. Uh, like Hestia, she is um, depicted carrying a torch. And we see her in similar fashion in Roman um, art and architecture and sculpture as we do um, Hestia. Um, She does become um, more significant, I would say, in the Roman world than, I don't know, I don't know if that's fair. Sorry, I'm rethinking that. I don't know if that's fair. I think she becomes... Or perhaps because we, as North Americans and some in Europeans, because Rome and the Roman Empire influences so much of our history, uh, perhaps one of the things that we have done is we have adapted more of their, or we have learned more about their traditions than perhaps the Greeks. Because I would argue that Hestia was extremely popular, as I've said for the last bit, for the Greeks, and yet her that name is not as popular as Vesta or the Vestal Virgins. If you ask people about the Vestal Virgins, more of them are more likely to know um, about the Vestal Virgins than Hestia, if you say Hestia, is what I mean. And I think because we've adapted the Romans more than we've adapted the Greeks, that might be that might be the reason as to why. Yeah. Vesta also has a similar story. Um, Apollo and Neptune, who is Poseidon, want to marry her. And Jupiter, who is Zeus, um, says no and allows Vesta to remain ever virgin or unmarried. Yeah. 
and she is also tending the fire um, and she's also wearing modest clothing and she's also often um, veiled. And interestingly, in Rome, she is accompanied by a donkey. And now I don't know if that has to do with the story where the donkey saves her from the attack or assault of Priapus or seduction. No, I don't like to use that word seduction because it's not seduction. It's it would have been assault. But anyways, um, I don't know if by that time, by the time the Romans, because the Romans do tell that story as well in a, again, so-called playful way. Um, and so I, I don't know if the Romans associated her with a donkey for that, or there is a theory that because she was associated with bread and because the mill was pulled by donkeys uh, to create flour, um, the donkey becomes associated with her and is one of the highly favored animals of Vesta and of the Romans. I mean, the Romans, one of the things the Romans did was they were hard workers. They were builders. They were hard workers. They fought hard. They build hard. They, they really, I would say that our work ethic in the West and particularly in North America, because America is built on the politics of Rome and Canada is influenced by the politics of Rome, uh, by the politics of America. Um, I would say that this concept of hard work comes out of that Roman ideology. Romans loved hard work. They loved to do stuff. And so they understand the donkey as a hard working animal and as a, as a necessary animal. And so in the case of Vesta, uh, the donkey becomes a highly favored um, animal. They also understand the value of bread eating, feeding people, feeding armies, feeding everybody. So did the Greeks. I'm not saying that they didn't, but the Greeks, um, to me anyways, they built lots of lovely things, but the Greeks, the Greeks are more like um, artistically driven, intellectually driven. They are driven by philosophy. They're driven by beauty. They're driven by um, poetry, song, blah, blah, blah. So uh, the Romans, and you know, if you read some of the Roman primary sources, you see that the Romans kind of thought of the Greeks as like these artsy, you know, the artsy kids, you know, or that they spend too much time philosophizing, not enough time fighting. And the Greeks would have thought of the Romans as brash, too brash. You know, they spend a lot of time building and and fighting, and um, they were very physical, you know. Um, and so uh, both empires both cultures have significantly impacted the world certainly the greeks coming before the romans significant i would say would be sort of foundational although the greeks then of course also borrowed from the egyptians sumerians the babylonians the you know all the people around them the minoans the, all, all the people so i don't want to say everything kind of bleeds into each other but um the Romans were definitely globally more impactful. One could argue. One could argue. Yeah. Um, and so Vesta, then you won't be surprised as much of what Hestia does. I wanted to talk just a little bit uh, about the Vestal Virgins, which are named after her and the the celebration of um, Vestalia. So Vestalia is a festival for Vesta, a Roman festival uh, that did not occur 
for the Greeks from June 7 to 15, and it's specifically for Vesta. So the first day of Vestalia would be recognized by offering sacrifice by women at the Temple of Vesta. And they were able to go in and offer sacrifices to Vesta. On June 9th, in the middle of the Vestalia festival, a donkey would be decorated with crowns and flowers and bits of bread. Um, and it would be, there would be a procession of this donkey around the temple, outside the temple of Vesta. And on the final day of Vestalia on June 15th, this day would be uh, dedicated to cleaning and purifying the temple of Vesta. So the temple of Vesta in Rome was a place where a flame burned and was tended to um, without break. It was it was a, a sort of seen as the immortal flame. So the Vestal virgins were young women who dedicated themselves to keeping the flame alive. So they so the flame represented the life force of Rome. So imagine how powerful it becomes over you know a couple of hundred years where. Rome becomes more and more and more powerful and more superstitious. I would argue that Romans were way more superstitious than the Greeks. You may argue otherwise. But the idea that the flame ever went out in the in the Temple of Vesta would have been devastating to the Romans. They would have thought it was catastrophic. It was the end of the world. So the Vestal virgins have a very... Um, significant role that is to keep that flame alive and they would vestal virgins would dedicate 30 years of their lives to the temple and they talk about being you know having uh five to six vestal virgins at the time depending on which time period there may be a couple of more there may be a couple of less one of the things that is very popular about the vestal virgins is that they had to be virgins and by that i mean um organically virgins and also not married um and if they were and so they had this place of honor um vestal virgins were of course taught to read they were taught math they were taught philosophy uh they were great conversationalists they were allowed to attend um meetings parties gatherings that sometimes were only men or very powerful men um because they were seen as sort of untouchable and sacred. They were also allowed to mingle with um, wealthy people, with um, diplomats from other countries. So a Vestal Virgin, being a Vestal Virgin, was no sacrifice. <laughs> Many women wanted to be a Vestal Virgin. Not only was it a place of honor and a place of making connections, but you were safe and untouched and unbothered for 30 years. And then after 30 years, you could leave and get married and have children, but almost no Vestal Virgins ever left. I think that once you live a life of that luxury and freedom, especially in such a high patriarchal um, political structure like Rome, very clearly you don't leave. Yeah. Um, and so often they started young, you know, 15, 16, sometimes younger, sometimes a bit older. Um, and dedicated themselves to tending the fire. And so they took turns tending the fire. Obviously, they had their own. We don't have very much primary source. In fact, I'm not sure that we have any primary source um, 
information from a Vestal Virgin. We have sources of the time that write about the Vestal Virgins, and those are there's all males. So it is unclear on exactly, nobody kept the journal, or if they did, we haven't found it, or a diary as to what did they do with their day, um, you know, in the temple. But uh, many people assume that, of course, they tended the flame, they cooked, they ate, they they worshipped the goddess Vesta, they made sure the temple was clean, they went to gatherings, they represented the flame in ritual, they went to rituals, they went to ceremonies, they went to celebrations, they prepared for the Vestalia. So they had lots and lots and lots to do. If a Vestal virgin broke her vow of virginity, and there are a couple of stories. I think there's about two stories. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. But there's about two stories that I remember where a Vestal Virgin is accused of breaking her vow and having been with a man. Notice not having been with a woman. I mean, but having been with a man. Um, their punishment was severe. And there is one story in which a um, Vestal Virgin is entombed so they were um uh, kind of buried alive they were closed in a tomb uh without food or water and they would die um in that tomb so uh, punishment was pretty much death there are a couple of stories <clears throat> of vestal virgins accused uh but not too many of them persecuted um there are some theories that say you know no one really wanted to kill or torture a Vestal Virgin, that that would have been really distasteful in Rome and that the Romans had no stomach for that. Uh, like I said, I know of one case that we're told that um, we that one of the Vestal Virgins was entombed, but um, throughout you know the several centuries in which a Vestal Virgin played a key role for Rome, not many of them were punished or you know even accused. Um, Vestalia is still um, observed in Rome today. Yeah? Uh, and in Italy, uh, weddings during Vestalia were considered unlucky and forbidden. So it was not a time to get married. Um, it was not a time to, uh, to say your vows. Vesta, yeah? um, of course, then becomes honored in the home and she becomes a goddess of domesticity and um family hmm? okay moving on um i would like to talk about this torch trinity so in my uh research and making my notes for this episode i came across several groups of goddess trinities and so i think my next episode will be on the holy trinity and this these long traditions of um goddess triads or goddess trinities and the one that I'm going to talk about today, because we're talking about torches and because all three of these goddesses carry torches and are seen as um, part of a trinity, is Artemis, Hecate, and Selene. So I would like to talk about them as a triad and in the form of a triad. Um, individually, of course, we can be here for a long time, but I would like to talk about their power as a triad and also the way that goddess triads work versus the way that holy trinities work in other spaces. Yeah. So uh, Hecate, of course, is uh, the Greek goddess of magic, witchcraft. She is the goddess of crossroads and the night. 
She is often depicted holding torches that illuminate her path as she travels the realm. And of course, she is a guide in the darkness. And this is one of my favorite images in which she is um, attacking um, a giant with her torches. Um, so Hecate is is a force to be reckoned with. And it, I would say the leading expert for me in the world on Hecate is Sorita Deste. So if you want to learn about Hecate and uh, be part of a Hecate community, um, I would look up Sorita Deste. Um, I might put some of her information in the description. She uh, not only wrote books, but she practiced, she is a, a follower of Hecate and is in a community of other Hecate worshipers. And so that's a great place to start if you have, um, if you're interested in learning more. Um, of course, the other is Artemis. And so although we think of Artemis often as the huntress, which is sometimes a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, but she is a huntress. So it's it's okay to think of her as a huntress, just not solely as a huntress. Um, one of my recent obsessions has been finding um, artifacts in which she carries torches. And so Artemis is a torch bearer. And um, it's important that we recognize her role, her key role as a torch bearer, because again, it brings up the evidence that she is a much more powerful goddess than a maiden huntress. And also because it speaks to her power um, during mystery rituals or during nighttime processions or rituals. And the third uh, goddess in the triad is Selene. Um, Selene is more popular among the Romans than I would argue she was among the Greeks, um, but she is often depicted carrying a torch, also a goddess of the moon, a goddess of night. She's sometimes called Cynthia, and she has a crescent moon on her forehead, um, sometimes called horns, sometimes called a crescent moon. The crescent moon and horns have such a, an overlap. Um, there are times or images or statues or, yeah, sculptures in which it's very clearly a crescent moon. And then there are other times where you're a bit like, mm, I don't know, could be horns as well. Um, so there's there's a deep connection between the moon, um, sacred horns, and in this case, uh, Selene, uh, the goddess of the moon. Yeah. Now, in ancient religion, for a time and in certain places, this triad or this triple goddess um, becomes a representation of these three goddesses with torches represented together. And I know that Hecate is often referred to as a triple goddess. And I know that there are great debates now between whether or not she represents maiden mother crone, which is very much a Robert Graves um, idea. And when I talk about Hecate or about the triple goddesses, I haven't decided. I would like to talk about maybe triple goddesses. We'll see. I would like to talk about um, the interpretation by early scholars of goddess representation and goddess symbolism. I don't want to dismiss the immense amount of work 
that these early scholars have done in goddess worship. But there are some biased assumptions that unintentionally have created a norm. And I think it's problematic when we take for granted that this is the norm. And a lot of Hecate worshipers are very irked at the depiction of Hecate as Maiden Mother Crone, since that's not really her realm. That's not really her thing. In the case of the triple goddess or the triad here, we do have some primary source that states, for example, Seneca the Younger talks about places in which this particular triad was worshipped. But while they were represented in three, and there are some pieces in which they are represented in three, as in a statue with three bodies and three goddesses, which often we know or refer to as Hecate, it is very made very clear that the goddesses are not combined into one, that they are simply a trinity. Three goddesses, like three women, like three leaders, like three individuals that come together for a common purpose or common goal. In the case of this triple goddess or this triad, the Artemis Hecate Selene, their goal has a lot to do with torch carrying, light bearing, enlightening, mysteries of the night, uh, and magic. Yeah, This group was often called the Artemis Triad. Uh, but in the Greco-Roman civilization, the triad was known by a variety of different names. Of course, Artemis being one of them. Yeah. Um, and so, and this triad bleeds into or is continued, the, the following of this triad continues in the Roman, uh, in the Roman world. Um, the origins of the triad is interesting. Um, in the classical and Hellenic, Hellenistic religion, this trio of goddesses was very popular and appears to be a part of the public religion of Rome. They, of course, the triad was worshipped by women, um, and they there was a lot of mothering um, and child protection. Um, excuse me, that was involved. Um, over time, the Romans adopt these Greek deities, like we've talked about, they really loved Selene, like I've mentioned. Romans really loved Selene, and they named her Luna. Often they refer to her as Luna. So Selene and Luma, Luna are the same goddess. Artemis then becomes known as Diana. And even today, as if you've seen my interview with Ruth Barrett, uh, a Dianic Wiccan leader, uh, priestess. Um, even today, many witches worship Diana and Hecate, who was the goddess of witches and magic in um, the Greek world, becomes referred to as trivia. And again, at some point, uh, the Romans conflate these three goddesses. Um, and there's even some coins with the images of these three goddesses together. So you can see how some of the statue, especially the later Roman statues of Hecate um, or triple goddesses, are, are often labeled as just Hecate as a triple goddess, but it might be three goddesses, whether it's these three or other three. So there's this sort of overlapping that happens. Um, 
the triad or triple goddess deities is is common in mythology. The number three is common in mythology. What I really, uh, Celtic mythology has some of the triads, others have triads. So this is why it kind of piqued my interest to look up some of the triple goddesses and that might be a, a future episode. But one of my favorite thing about this is, um, is the torch, is the torch bearing. These goddesses as a triple, as a triad were worshipped in groves and had shrines in the forest. You won't be surprised at that. Um, and the triad is so powerful because it combines the powers of all three goddesses. So we've got the wilderness, which is uh, Artemis's realm as mistress of animals. We've got uh, magic and pharmacology um, and, and witchcraft, which is the realm of Hecate, crossroads, all of those things. And we've got the moon and the night and the, and the power of the moon, which is the realm of Selene. Uh, Luna. So one could argue that these this triad, these goddesses put together are an epitome of power. They really embody all aspects of the spiritual and the organic earth world. Um, but especially because they all carry torches, there is a mood of mystery. There is a mood of initiation into mysteries. There is a, uh, an, an allusion to sacred knowledge, to secret knowledge. Um, and, and of course, a long, long association with salvation, the light in the darkness, the, um, the crossing into the world, uh, both Artemis and Hecate and Selene actually are Chthonic goddesses, goddesses who can cross through realms. And so these goddesses, of course, become a powerhouse to be reckoned with. So the triad is very popular with magicians, with anybody that practices magic, um, incantations, spells. Um, there are Hecate as a, as a triad goddess or a goddess of three can be traced way back past the Greeks to the Egyptians. Um, there is a long, Artemis also can be tra traced way back, perhaps past the Minoans. Um, so there is a long history of knowledge and practice that these three goddesses bring to the table and when they are placed together and worship together, especially with their torches, um, they become an incredible source of power. Um, and so, and all three of them are fighter goddesses. Uh, Celine, perhaps not as much. She's not as famous for fighting back, although she can, but um, Hecate and Artemis are especially, uh, known for their fierceness, for their um, retribution, <laughs> and uh, for their unapologetic um, ways of dealing with anyone that does not uh, conform to their expectations. Yeah. So a very powerful torch trinity, these three. And again, this has really inspired me to talk about goddess trinities and to, to share with you that the original trinities were female. 
and that the original trinities were goddesses. Um, and so in my search, I found numerous trinities of goddesses. Not to say that every now and then you don't have a, a male god trinity or you don't have a male god involved in the trinity. I cannot at this point, without done, having done all the research, uh, confirm or deny. But what I've come across so far, preliminarily speaking, is that the earliest form of a trinity is female goddesses. And that is the form that is most popular, that we have most representations for, and most sources or primary sources for. Moving on, um, I would like to touch on... Um, perfect. So just going through my notes. I would like to lastly touch on Bridget. There are a few others. For example, like I said, Inanna Ishtar um, is associated often with uh, Torch. She carries torch, but torches, but I would like to talk about her because Inanna Ishtar really needs her own episode. You know, she's really telling me like, really, Carla, uh, you can't get me in 20 minutes, you know? Uh, and I would really like to do an episode on her where I want to go with you in her um, journey to the underworld. So um, I'm, I'm adding that to my list. Because, um, you know, I like to read you stories every now and then. So um, we'll do that next time. So there's, there's a couple of others. There's a couple of others. There's a couple of male gods that have female torchbearers as well. Uh, but I would like to talk about Bridget because I find Bridget really fascinating. And she fits into the theme of this episode, which is the carrying of fire, the carrying of flame. But what I'd really like to... Um, mentioned before we move we're going to look at the statue of liberty and carrying the flame into the modern world um what's really fascinating about bridget is that she moves from goddess to saint and i really find that fascinating um i've written some and i'm writing some more on the that association between that that happens to artemis of ephesus artemis of ephesus to the virgin mary um and I think Bridget is a great example of how goddesses of power, particularly of the power of the flame, were so powerful and influential and personal to the community, to the culture, that Christianity had no choice but to adapt, adapt them in order to conquer them. So who is Bridget? So Bridget is a Celtic goddess. She was seen as a powerful queen and belonged to the ancient Celtic tribe of the gods, the Tuadenan. Tuadenan. I'm saying that wrong. I apologize to all my Celtic followers. Um, she is often identified as the daughter of Dagda, the great father of the great father gods of the Celts. In other tales, Bridget is said to be the daughter of Dubtak, Dubtak, a druid and a Christian mother. So you see how this changes, who brought her from Ireland to the island of Yona, also known as the Druid's Island. So there are these interesting over, what a fascinating character, uh, goddess, person, saint Bridget is. Um, I think Bridget is a map for how Celtic traditions were Christianized. Uh, and maybe that's what I find so fascinating about her. 
Uh, it was said that Bridget was born at sunrise in the town of Fagart, and she ascended into the sky along with the sun. So that was in her form as a goddess. And that the rays of fire and light shone forth from her head in a tower of flame that reached up to the heavens. The event of her birth was so bright that the family household looked as if it were on fire. So this then becomes the human goddess. As an infant, she was fed the milk of a sacred cow from the Celtic otherworld. So she is still often associated with cattle and milk. Just in that paragraph alone, <laughs> you can see the blending of Celtic tradition, Christian symbology, and ancient, almost Egyptian and pre-Egyptian um, association with goddess as cattle associated with cattle and associated with milk and this idea of milk and honey and the sacred milk and all these kinds of things yeah um she bridget is often said to have watched over an apple apple orchard in the celtic world apples have always associated wisdom have been associated with wisdom healing and magic as we've talked about when we talked about lilith and the garden of eden is not an accident that the fruit in the um, story of Genesis 2 becomes associated with an apple, especially over in Europe. Now, as we've talked about in the original text, that fruit may have been a fig or some other type of fruit, but that fruit becomes associated for Christians with an apple because apples have a long-standing association with wisdom, magic, healing um, in Europe. Bridges also associated with bees, which are also associated with magic um, and healing and fertility. But I think the most interesting aspect of, of Bridget is her association with the flame um, or with a torch. Yeah, This idea, again, that she has an eternal flame. Yeah? Sometimes Bridget is represented as three sisters or three mothers. And so, again, this is really fascinating. We see, again, this trilogy um, in Celtic history. Um, in 453 B, I mean, CE, um, Bridget was, uh, was made into a saint uh, by the Christian church. So, so she was a goddess who then was given a human story, who then was uh, consecrated into a saint in 453 CE. So... And today she continues to be honored, of course, in Ireland. Um, there are sacred healing wells to her. There are sacred spaces to her um, and sacred rituals in honor of her. She had a flame and a fire that was said, a sacred fire that was said to burn in Kildari, Kildari for 600 years and that these this flame was tended by Bridget originally and then 19, consequentially, of her nuns. We were also told that when Bridget left the earth, when apparently she was in human form and passed into the realm of the spirit, the nuns took turns to tending the flame. And on the 20th night, Bridget would return to watch over the sacred flame once more. So we're told that from the ancient, so pre-Christian tradition, worshipers of Bridget would tend the flame. So not a surprise that we have another goddess that is a flame goddess that is a 
hearth goddess and where women are called to tend the flame for her, to keep the immortal flame alive, to keep light and life and knowledge alive. And of course, she is seen as a goddess who brings warmth to the who brings warmth in a time of darkness or light or illumination, inspiration. She is a goddess of inspiration. So fire is also uh, deeply connected with inspiration. And she is associated with fairy folk. Yeah. Um, she has many, many other associations. You know, uh, Bridget is a complex goddess as well. In many ways, she takes up the role of several goddesses because she is she embodies so so there are stories in that say that she's a goddess of fire and water makes sense um she is often a goddess of sovereignty so she also refuses to have children or to be married shocking right so i, I mean there's something interesting here there's something about goddesses that are in charge or in charge or responsible for wisdom and knowledge there's something about these goddesses and not being married and not having children. So the, the sacred devotion of keeping the fire burning seems to imply that there is no time for distractions like marriage and motherhood. Marriage and motherhood are commitments. They are dedications as well, and honorable ones at that. But in order to keep the sacred flame alive, in order to dedicate yourself to this immortal enlightenment, salvation, knowledge, you must have no distractions. And in the case of women, no marriage and no children. Yeah. Uh, the traditional time to celebrate Bridget is February 1st, uh, which is Bridget's day. Uh, but also her celebration continues on February 2nd with Imbolc or a candle mass where she takes the stage as light begins to return into the world once more after the darkness of wisdom, uh, winter. So she is the goddess uh, invoked at Imbolc often, um, the goddess that brings day, light, warmth after winter. Again, um, An incredible and underrated amount of power. Um, winter is powerful as well, and there's many goddesses that represent winter. But since we're talking about flames and warmth and light, Bridget is a fantastic um, example of how powerful and um, influential goddesses of the torch or of the flames are. Yeah. Um, she's also said to be a, a skilled warrior, uh, skilled in martial arts, skilled in combat. Um, so she, you know, so she's she's very, very similar to the combat or the unapologetic, self-defending uh, divinities that we've spoken about so far. Um, and so moving into the modern world a little bit, there's this really interesting uh, goddess of light statue um, in Kerala, in India. Uh, I've placed some images here on, on YouTube, but if you Google her, if you're listening to me, um, there is, uh, she is a, a modern build structure um, at the Valia Villa Golden Lake Resort. Um, and I just found it fascinating when you Google goddesses with torches that this is the image. So it's, again, a goddess naked uh, kind of standing on a half tree trunk 
and holding up a flame that I assume looks like not a I mean it looks like a light and it's close to the beach and by the by the resort. So I assume that that lights up at night. Um, and so this is in India. Again, a really a worldly, a global connection um, of goddesses that hold light in their hand. Um, she's she's literally called the goddess of light. And at underneath the statue, you can see that term, the goddess of light. Um, and so she brings light to, you know, visitors or anyone that is sailing by. So I just find it fascinating that uh, we find goddesses who hold torches or who hold fire or hold light all over the world. And I would like to close by talking about the Statue of Liberty. I will be doing an after the podcast um, today for those of you who follow me on Patreon. If you are a Patreon member, I'm going to post this today. We're going to talk about the cult, the mystery cult of Despina with Demeter, Despina and Artemis that carry that carry torches um, and the worship um, that was going on there. If you don't follow me on Patreon, you could just look up the Goddess Project on Patreon. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, here is the QR code. Um, you can just scan that um, and subscribe and help support the Artemis Center and this podcast and get access to after the podcast recordings, which are a little bit shorter, but super fascinating. So I'd like to close with um, the Statue of Liberty because I always find her fascinating, not so much in the statue itself, but um, in her story and what she represents. And I've, hmm, let's start with, let's start with a little bit about the Statue of Liberty for those of you that are not American or maybe don't know much about her. The original name for the Statue of Liberty was Liberty Enlightening the World. I mean, right? Like, not only is it a massive symbol in American culture and therefore in global culture because it's used um, and known literally throughout the world, but it is a woman holding a torch, right? Um, and there are numerous inspirations. Many argue that this is Hecate in her form, in her modern form, um, because she has this um, crown, this um, diadem or halo or sun crown um, that has seven uh, seven um, points, seven sun points, you know, for the seven continents, uh, we are told. But she very much represents Helios. For example, Helios has uh, one of the early um, halos or light or sunray halos. Um, Mithras also has sunray halos. There is a fascination with the sunray halos on the heads of divinities. Often, of course, that represents enlightenment, simply sacred knowledge, enlightenment. In Christianity, Jesus and Mary are often represented with halos. Saints are represented with halos. These were not invented by Christians. These were borrowed uh, and adapted by Christians from previous divinities. Many, many of them have halos. Um, I don't know if you call them all halo, halos. Sometimes they call them diadems. Sometimes they call them crowns. But divinities or gods have almost always been depicted with the sun around their head or like Selene, the moon. 
and there is something cerebral and celestial about it. So there's this idea, cerebral, by cerebral, I mean that there's knowledge, there's sacred knowledge, there's enlightening knowledge, there's mystery knowledge. And celestial, I mean that there is something cosmological, there is something um, outside of earthly knowledge, earthly connection. Often it refers to a deity. So the fact that the Statue of Liberty wears a halo or a diadem on her head is um, significantly in, 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 symbolic. The whole statue is symbolic. I mean, the French, uh, the the um, the designer Frederick Bartholdi used a great deal of symbolism in creating this gift that was later given to the United States. Um, now, we are told. Many historians say uh, that the Statue of Liberty was modeled after Libertas, the Roman goddess of freedom. Okay. Um, however, the sculptor Fred Frederick Bartholdi was first inspired by the colossal, colossal figures guarding Nubian tombs. He developed a long, long, long passion for large-scale public monuments. And in his proposal for the Suez Canal... Bartholdi designed the monumental statue of a robe-clad woman holding a torch representing Egypt to stand at Port Said at the northern end of the canal. And the name of the statue was titled Egypt Carrying the Light to Asia. So that was the original that uh, Frederick Bartholdi wanted to create before the Statue of Liberty became um, a thought. But his proposal to create the statue called Egypt Carrying the Light to Asia was scrapped due to the high cost. However, the designs were kept and the female figure in the port said design evolved into the goddess that becomes liberty enlightening the world or the Statue of Liberty. And it's it's interesting because the quote for the Statue of Liberty is, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my life, I lift my lamp beside the golden door. And of course, this is the, the statue that people, immigrants and refugees foresee when they arrive. Um into America, into this port, and she is meant to light the way to, um, to, 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 to be the welcoming image that new immigrants see as they arrive. Um, but just think about how powerful that is. Uh, I mean, coming back to this idea that the, um, that American men think about Ro the Roman empire every hour or every day, um, I wonder how many think of the Roman Empire when they look at the Statue of Liberty. I wonder I wonder if this connection between the Statue of Liberty, the Roman Libertas, the Greek Hecate and others becomes like sort of a, a new a, a connection, you know, um in in that thought process. I'm not sure. I mean, you'd have to tell me if every time you look at the Statue of Liberty you see Hecate. I do. 
<laughs> you know, every time I go to New York and I've recently started going to New York more and more often, uh, but every time or every time I see her anywhere, I think about uh, Hecate. And in fact, I think of her as Hecate. Um, and I've caught myself having conversations with people and being like, oh, yeah, that Hecate statue, right? Um, and when I was a kid, we went to the to the Statue of Liberty, uh, although we didn't climb inside. Um, and so, and it's what's even more fascinating. I know that everyone sees her in this green image of today, which is of course the copper that's gone, um, that's oxidized. But when she was assembled, she was a brown color. Okay. So I I want you to take that in. She was a beautiful bronze brown goddess. And I can't even imagine how stunningly she must have shown or shine, you know, because bronze shines. Well, if it's polished, Um, but for about 35 years, she was a stunningly brown figure. And then of course um, her copper skin began to oxidize by the 1920s. Um, Also her feet uh, at the bottom, if you've never seen her feet, she has a chain unbroken and this represents the sort of the celebration of the end of slavery and the unchaining uh, of people. So again, there is this um, connection to freedom, this connection to liberty, justice, uh, a new way of life. Um, and ironically, also, I don't know if you know this, but she attracts lightning bolts. Maybe some of you know that. Apparently, by most estimates, the statue has been hit by 600 bolts of lightning ever since it was uh, assembled in the New York Harbor. And there are a couple of images online of her being hit by lightning. And so what a fascinating connection, especially if you think back to to Zeus as the god of lightning and to liberty as the... um, as the as as Hecate, um, what a, what a what a fascinating. Um, it's not an end. I feel like it's a fascinating end to the story, but it's not an end because really it's a continuation to the story. And so I think that I will leave you here. Um, like I said, if you want to join me for after the podcast, please join me on Patreon. Um, I will post this after I post uh, the lar- the the episode on YouTube. Um, but I just I, I hope that you have been as fascinated by um, torches and by goddesses who carry them and and fascinated by the modern connections. So we started with Columbia Pictures and the woman holding the torch for Columbia Pictures. Um, and, you know, so many movies in Hollywood that so many people see when they're going to the movies. And we went through the ancient um, Greco-Roman, a little bit of Celtic um, traditions of goddesses with torches, and then ended, you know, into um, American politics and this massive symbol of a goddess holding a torch um, of freedom, of liberty, of enlightenment, of learning, of salvation. Uh, especially for immigrants that were trying to escape, you know, their conditions, uh, ironically in Europe <laughs> or other places, um, originally, 
um, the statue was meant to represent that salvation for anyone who is, and continues to represent that salvation for anyone who arrives in America and that way, right? I mean, there's other ways to arrive in America as an immigrant, but, um, but it continues to be a symbol of liberty and enlightenment. You know, it's just this beautiful, massive symbol of, of, what I call Hecate. So thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please uh, subscribe, please like, please rate. Uh, that always helps the algorithms um, pick up uh, the channel and please share with anyone else that uh, is interested in um, goddess lore and goddess history or any goddess related aspects. Um, and I will see you all um, in a couple of weeks. I don't know if I'm going to do Ishtar, Inanna, Hecate, or the Trinity goddess, uh, but we will get them all done this season. And uh, I hope that you will come back and join me uh, for the next episodes. Have the most fantastic day, and I will see you all um, in a couple of weeks.